Hello, I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson. And we are your hosts of The The Premise, Premise. where we get to the story behind the storyteller. And this season four, that's right, we're in season four. We've got some amazing storytellers lined up, and we really appreciate you listening. Be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Let's roll. Autobots, roll out. Hello, and welcome to The Premise. Today on The Premise, we welcome back Laura Cathcart-Robbins, author of Stash, My Life in Hiding. Laura is also a freelance writer, speaker, and host of the popular podcast, The Only One in the Room. She has been active for many years as a speaker and school trustee, and is credited and is credited for creating the Buckley School's nationally recognized Committee on Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Justice. Her recent articles in HuffPost and The Temper on the subjects of race, recovery, and divorce have garnered worldwide acclaim. She is a 2022 TEDx speaker and an L.A. Moth Story Slam winner. Currently, she sits on the advisory boards of the San Diego Writers Festival and the Outliers HQ Podcast Festival. Laura, welcome back, and thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Jennifer and Chad, for having me. I appreciate you guys so much. This is so much fun. I was looking back because, you know, dear listeners, we had Laura and Scott Slaughter on the premise back in episode four when we talked about your podcast, The Only One in the Room. I think you'd been probably around a year at that point, and now it's been Five, six years? This will be four in April is okay, the, four. Is the podcast. Um, Got it. And then, but I think you and I have known each other for going on five this year. That's right. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I mentioned just a minute ago that Laura sits on our board for the San Diego Writers Festival. And we're just so grateful to you, Laura. Mm-hmm. And this last festival, we were in person, folks. It was amazing. Amazing. Laura, you had like this entourage of people <laughs> following you around. It was so awesome. Yes, they go everywhere I go. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it, but could I just say about the San Diego Writers Festival, because I was I was there when you guys started it. Mm-hmm. and In person that first year. In person yeah. that first year. And it is a real, like, grown-ass writers festival now. <laughs> it is so good. Yay. It's so good. It is like I I went down there and I had been, you know, talking to you guys about the planning, but I was expecting it to be because we had also after that first year we had gone into virtual. Yeah. Yeah. Which was always very professional and very cool and very well attended, but I didn't know how the first one back in person would be and man, mm. you guys blew me away. I was so excited to be a part of it. Well, we were, I mean, we are just so glad that you are a part of it. Yeah. And you're a huge part of, you know, our, our focus, our mission. It's, it's fucking awesome. I'm going to say oh, it. I'm going to swear. You. Yeah. Thank you. And we had, I think, I'm going to say 2,500 people came out, mm-hmm. which I was, I'll be honest, I was shocked. We weren't sure either how it was going to go being back in person the first year. Yeah. And every room I went into was packed. There were people yes. in the hallways. Yes. And then later people would say, I really wanted to take your class, but there wasn't even room in the hallway. And I was like, no. wow. Yeah. It's, yeah. It was, it was, it was very well done. Very well done. I'm looking forward to this year's. Well, thank you. And thank you for 
everything you do to make it happen with us. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about your book. So, and I want to tell people too, go back and listen to episode four with Scott Slaughter and Laura Cathcart <laughs> Robbins. It's kind of awesome. And it's a precursor to this book we're going to talk about today too. Yes. Um, so go back and listen. We'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll wait. Yeah. <laughs> Laura. Right now. Yes. Yeah, exactly. This book is so good. Oh, thank you. I I could not put it down. Your writing is fantastic. It's intense. It's raw. It's vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It's also really empowering and even humorous, you know, despite the content. Um, I missed, I got to admit, I cried several times throughout the book. You really bring us there. Mm -hmm. So nice job. Thank you. Stash is, of course, about addiction, but it's so much more than that. It's about race. It's about privilege Mm -hmm. and identity, divorce. It's about survival. But ultimately, I think this is a love story. Yes. You know? Yes. It's on so many different levels. The love story for your boys, the love story Mm -hmm. of finding your soulmate. Yes. No spoilers, folks. And (laughs) the story of finding love for yourself. I mean, I really Mm -hmm. saw it as a love story to you, Mm -hmm. you know, overcoming everything to fight for what you know you must do and learning to trust yourself and even love yourself again. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for seeing it that way. It's exactly as I wrote it, the way I intended. Mm. Um, Can you hear my dog barking? Yeah, but it's okay. We like dogs. (laughs) (laughs) We welcome dogs. I appreciate that because we we might even I have hear no some idea cats. why she's barking. <laughs> well, if you need to go, let us know. We'll just no, we'll no, wait. No, we'll I'm wait. I'm sure it's a dog, um, like going by the house. <laughs> yeah, she, she's, she's offended. Just, <laughs> what are you doing in my space? <laughs> right. Um, but yes, thank you for seeing it as a love story. That is that is how I wrote it. Yeah, yeah. How difficult was it to tell this story? So this story took place, um, it was a 10-month period in 2008. Uh, It started in That was a tough year for a lot of people, too. It was a tough year for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I was very unaware of why it was a tough year for the rest of the world, (laughs) because I was (laughs) was siloed in my own little bubble, but it was a tough year. Um, So it was a 10-month period, and um, it's probably the, the worst um the most uh harrowing uh the most fearful uh the most rewarding uh 10 months of my life mm. and so writing about it from you know I started writing it when I was 13 years sober I'm almost 15 years sober now but uh I really congratulations I oh, thank say. you yeah. thank you it was the hard part was getting back to those feelings because mm-hmm. it's so not a daily part of my life anymore or a monthly or a weekly or a yearly. Like I don't deal with that stuff anymore. I don't deal with any of that angst or that fear or that hustle that I had to have in order to survive. Yeah. Yeah. So, th- so the hard part was really doing the research so I could put myself back in that body mm. as I was writing and, um, and feel the same things like that. Um, that sensorial thing where I wanted to be able to remember how it felt when my heart was beating that fast or 
when, you know, my fingers were shaking when I reached for the phone or like that kind of thing. I really wanted to be able to experience it. So I, I read a lot of my journals and pulled out a lot of pictures and my day planners were really helpful. And and there were a couple parts in there that were really moving to write about. Mm. And I had to, um, I didn't have to, I chose to take some like time away from my computer for like a few hours when I was writing it at a time, like, you know, the a couple of scenes with my kids and a, a scene with my ex-husband. Um, they were both difficult for me to not feel like I was in it when I was writing about it. And, no, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I felt it. Mm, I kept thinking you. about you when I was reading, I was like, damn, it's like you had to experience it all over again in order to yeah. write it this yeah. raw and bring us yeah. there. Yes. There's exactly. this line in the author's note where you write, I sometimes relied on my journals, pictures, and old day planners to interrogate my memory. Mm -hmm. And that really gave me goosebumps. Mm. Yeah, because I misremember things a lot. Mm. <laughs> and so sure. I'd be like, oh, that didn't happen in that month at all. <laughs> this this appointment, this particular doctor's appointment took place in April, and I'm thinking it happened in July. Like, So I remember things, but the way I remember them um, wasn't always correct. And I I found out a lot about my life, actually, <laughs> looking, <laughs> looking through all that stuff. It's like I'm an excavation. Sure. Right. Yeah. Well, and having to go back and talk to people, friends and family and, you know, mm -hmm. Have them kind of go through it again, too, to remember must have been hard. Yeah, I didn't do any of that. <laughs> you didn't? No. <laughs> well, I didn't. I mean, I talked to Scotty, but he wasn't there then. Um, and I talked, maybe I talked a little bit to my mom about it, but I, don't, I didn't really let her in on why. Mm. Um, I'll be, you know, just, do you remember this day? Do you remember, like, what, were we by ourselves or we were on the phone? I think I talked to her a couple of times, but she was probably the only one wow. I talked to. Yeah. Why? Why do you think that is? Oh, I, I just felt like I had everything I needed to write it. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Well, did, did you know that you were going to try and publish this book or, you know? Yes. Okay. Yes. So I had started with, um, in the summer of 2020, there was an Instagram post on HarperCollins page. Um, and in response to everything that was going on with the cultural reckoning, they put out a post saying that they would accept um, 30 pages and a query, which is a pitch letter mm -hmm. um, from unagented black authors oh, uh, until wow. the end of the summer. Huh. And I didn't have either. I didn't have 30 pages or a query, but I decided <laughs> they that <get> a little time. <laughs> this was a sign that I should get this book. And, you know, so I started, I wrote. And I sent them to my writer's group and they sent me back notes and I wrote the query and Amy Bond from my writer's group was phenomenal and really helped me shape it. And I submitted it by the deadline and I got an automatic response that said, thank you for your fiction submission. Hmm. And I sat back down in my chair and I like almost cried because I knew it wouldn't be considered because it's memoir and they were only looking for fiction. I didn't see that part of the post. Uh. But, but a friend of mine, Holly Whitaker, read it a few months later and then she showed it to her agent who signed me the next day. Wow. And said, <laughs> how quickly can you write it? Mm. So I wrote the book for that purpose. Like she's like, let's go. Let's get nice. this out in the world. So I wrote it in six months. 
right. from 11 to seven every day. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. 11 to seven. Yep. I was grinding, grinding yeah. it out there. So yes, I was writing it to be published because she was going to sell it for me. Talk to us about the editing process and, you know, getting it to where you knew it needed to be. Yeah. So um, Rebecca Gradinger, she's my agent. Um, she was amazing. She read pages. I mean, I didn't send her individual pages. I would send her drafts um, or like the next 30 pages rather. And she would read and then give me comments back. Um, it was usually like more of this, less of this, more of this, less of this. Mm. Very general. Um, there were a couple of specific things. Um, the humor was something that she encouraged me with a lot. She's like, mm. you're funny. Put it yeah. in there. Bring it. Yeah. Yeah. Bring the humor. Don't be afraid of it. Mm -hmm. So it would be stuff like that. And then I would go back and insert um, where where I thought things were funny or where I was funny to myself and put that stuff in. And then once we'd sold it, which happened in October of 2021, um, I started working with Michelle um, Mulligan Herrera, and she is at Atria. That's Atria Simon and Schuster. And she was, we, you know, we gave her a completed manuscript. So she really just went back and she made me, she suggested that I write more about why I am the way that I am. Mm-hmm. I didn't have anything about my childhood in there. Oh, interesting. Um, at all. I, I actually didn't want to write about it. I thought mm-hmm. that would be too long and it would take, it would be too messy and it would take too long. <laughs> and she's like, no, no, we need that. So she had me put in a couple of scenes like that and um, she took out some stuff that that she felt was superfluous, and um, you know, she was really just. She asked questions. Nice. Um, like, why would you sneak your pills into rehab? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like, what? <laughs> because I was a drug addict. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what we Which do. part are you missing of this? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so funny. Well, going deeper, and I think, you know, it's in the second chapter that you Mm. bring us to your childhood, and that that was smart. We needed to, we needed to understand who you were and who you thought you were trying to be, I think. Yes. You know, one of my favorite parts about the book, and I liked a lot, was the inner dialogue, because we get to see the Laura that you have fabricated, the Laura you think your husband wants you to be, you think the world expects you to be, Mm -hmm. and then the Laura you really are, the one you hide. Yes. Yes. I I love, that's my favorite thing, that's my favorite way to write, and Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's a name for that type of writing, but I, I always have so much inner dialogue going on in every situation, and I think it's funny. I think it's relatable. And um, I think it's really interesting. I I don't know, like I wasn't thinking about TV or film or anything like that when I was writing it, because I know that kind of thing is, is hard to translate um, onto the screen. But for reading, I just think it's really great to have the insight scoop on on the narrator. Yeah, totally. So I want to talk about, you know, after rehab, Mm-hmm. And actually, you know what? I'd like for you to read from the book. Do you, do you mind? Are you doing the audio version of the book? I did. I recorded the audio version. Nice. Jennifer, it was so hard. Was it? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's acting. No yeah. one told me that. <laughs> yeah. What? I was like, I went in there. There's a director in New York, and there's two producers in the studio with me. And, you know, I'm just used to me and Scott. 
Um, I I was never an actress. That was never anything that I I wanted to be, and so I have no experience with it. And it was it was really it was hard, and it was so much energy, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I'm I know that I read things the way that only I could have read them. Yeah. So I'm really glad that I did it. Yeah. How long did it take? It was like the first session was six hours. I think the first two days were six hours a piece. And then we did wow. four. Wow. Um, and then we did, I think the the, sec- the last session was four as well. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's exhausting. That's yeah. gallons of lemon water. <laughs> yes. Yes. We, the second day, Chad, I had my lemon water, my throat coat tea. <laughs> yes. Um, and oh my god, a pillow over my stomach because it kept growling. <laughs> <laughs> I was so embarrassed. They're like, "Don't worry, it happens to everybody." I'm like, "Okay, good," because we would work, you know, up until lunch, and my stomach would be making so much noise. I'm hungry. Feed yes, me. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then it would be digesting after I ate. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so there was no respite. It was terrible. People don't realize what goes into audio. Yeah, yeah. you get it. The tea, the lemon water, but also not eating a certain amount of time before, but making sure you eat enough time so you're not starving. Well, this is what I've since learned. Mm. People who do that for a living eat ice cream because it coats the stomach and it doesn't make them, it it allows the stomach to stop, to quiet it. It it quiets the stomach. Interesting. Yeah. I I can't imagine doing that. (laughs) I would just, it'd make me so phlegmy. Oh uh, well, maybe you could do like um, vegan ice cream, a, like a like a sherbet. Or yeah, 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 exactly. Sherbet. Yeah. There you Ooh, go. Now I want some sherbet. Yeah, <laughs> orange. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Marionberry lemon. Mm. Oh wow. Um. So yeah, I have something to read if you want. Let's hear it. Okay. Yeah, I'd love that. Thank you. This is from the chapter called Doctor Shopping. Okay. So I have been um you know, extending this prescription that was that was an override for what the state of California allowed you to have. And I had been gifted this after I had two grand mal seizures. And I'm laughing as I say that because it's ridiculous that mm. they gave me an override. Yeah. The seizures were from Ambien withdrawal. Um, yeah. But I was very happy about mm. this override because it allowed me to get as much Ambien as I needed. But this prescription has now come under suspicion, and my doctor has said, we're tapering you, we're cutting you off, and I'm home after that visit trying to figure out who else I can get Ambien from. And I, in my head, I land upon this doctor that lives in my neighborhood. Pros and cons of, dr- of bringing Dr. Nelson into my little drug shell game. Pro, I'll have a second Ambien source while I'm tapering. Con. It's literally too close to home. I'll be shitting where I eat and risking exposure. I can see my heart pounding through my bodysuit as I push the call button. What if Dr. Nelson mentions my call at his daughter's birthday party next week? Or what if he reports me for drug seeking? I panic and hang up quickly before anyone answers. You don't have a choice, I hiss to myself, pinching my upper thigh until I feel it starting to bruise. Make the call. I check the hallway before I call, praying that by some miracle a nurse answers and just offers to give me a prescription. I know I'm playing Russian roulette here. A no is a bullet through my skull. 
a yes is a stay of execution. I hit the green arrow and the phone rings. Jesus, fuck. When she answers, I do my best white girl voice to explain we're headed out of town and my regular doctor is away for two weeks. Would Dr. Nelson mind just calling in a refill for me this one time? I think maybe she's hung up on me, but after a couple of excruciating seconds of silence, she asked me to hold on. I pace in a circle on the carpet, praying, praying, praying that I get that stay of execution. Yes or no? Yes or no? Hello? Yes. My heart stops beating. He'd like you to come in for an appointment. A gun cocks in my head. Since it's been over a year since you were last here, can you come in Wednesday morning? Boom. Fuck. I can't see him for an office visit. He'll call Limbaum for my chart and then I'm done. Why did he have to be all doctorish? Why can't he just do a sister a solid? I sit back on the bed and deflate like a day-old helium balloon. I know what I have to do now. Hmm. And that. Wow. Is that. Nice. <laughs> Very well chosen. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I have to start thinking about these things. Cause I have to start doing readings, you know. That's right. Yeah. yeah. People want to know what happens. Yes. And I was thinking about that, you know, in this conversation today, there's so much I want to talk about, but there's also so much I don't want to talk about because I want people to read the book and take right. this journey with you. I do want to bring people to the place and point where you've just come back from rehab. Mm -hmm. you're, you're seeing your home through clear eyes and you remark about how dingy everything looked to you. Yes. And that surprises you. Can, can you take us back to that moment? Oh, gosh, I remember it so well. I had been in rehab in another state in, in Arizona. I live in Los Angeles. And I had flown back by myself. No one had met me at the airport because I hadn't told anyone when I was coming in. And I arrived by taxi um, at my home, which was this very, it was, it was more of an estate than a home. It was elongated driveway. It was an 11,000 square foot home. It was an incredible property with trails and a tennis court. And I walked in the big double doors led by my kids, my two young boys, and they're each holding one of my hands, so happy that I'm home. And I, I'm just out of my body at that mm. moment. Like I can't be where I am. It's so surreal to have been away for 30 days and then walking back to the same house with the same circumstances, but yet I'm so different now because I'm, I'm sober and very uncomfortable. And I'm looking around and we have this runner on the, we had two stairways, a front and a back, and the front stairway had this runner on it that was just worn and dingy. And it never looked like that to me before, but looking at it, when I came in, it looked it looked it looked dilapidated. Hmm. I was like, "Why haven't we changed that? That's mm. ridiculous that this beautiful home has this worn runner up the front staircase, and then the uh we had these drapes that sorry covered the uh the family room windows and the living room, and there were these like heavy kind of gone with the wind 
drapes. <laughs> and <laughs> I they I just wanted it looks so dark in there. It's a huge, like all these big windows, but it didn't feel like any light was getting in. And I don't know how much of that was my perception because I I was so uncomfortable and sober and blah, blah, blah. So I was just, you know, I don't know if it was me getting home from treatment discomfort and everything just like my perception was skewed or if it was just that I'd been away for longer than I'd ever been away from my house and was able to have this fresh perspective. But regardless, I felt deeply uncomfortable um, walking in, even though for the past 30 days, all I wanted to do was be home with my kids. Right. It really illustrated to me how you had been going through life in a fog. Yes. You know, and that all of a sudden you're clear headed and clear eyed and you see things as they are. And right after that scene is another one that was just so powerful for me as a reader, where you're talking to your husband, you know, you just walked up to the bedroom, he's put down your bags and you don't know what to do with your hands. And I'm actually going to read it. Okay. For our, for our listeners, my hand movements felt awkward, flourishly. I balled them up and put them behind me. What did I used to do with my hands when I talked? How do people just know what to do with their hands? And I like stopped reading that for a moment. And I was like, yeah, like you're suddenly present in your body. Mm-hmm. And you don't know what to do with your hands. And that was just such a powerful moment. When you, when you wrote that, did that just come easily? Is that something you went back in and you tried to, you know, give us that sense of suddenly being in a body that was unfamiliar to you or? Yeah, that is very, um, that, that memory is, is, is really accessible for me. Mm-hmm. I, I remember I can, I can feel it right now, what that looked like. It wasn't, it wasn't one of those memories I had to dig, dig through documents to connect with. Um, there are a few things that I'll never forget. And well, I, I don't know what I'll ever forget. <laughs> I can forget everything <laughs> next week. Um, but but there are a few things that I don't think I'll forget. And that's one of them is that that moment of coming home and being so awkward in my own body. And like you said, very painfully aware um, and self-aware. And, and I had definitely been numbing all that for so long, some of it by choice. Like I don't know if people want to be that aware. <laughs> of what's going on around them. I think there's a, you know, if not with um, booze and drugs, people kind of dull that awareness with food or with shopping or, Mm. you know, uh, working out or gambling. I think that that type of awareness that I was experiencing can be painful for anyone. Well, Um, really scary for the first time in a long time. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I spent a very uncomfortable first year like that that everything felt like that, that entire first year of sobriety for me. And yet you pushed through. In fact, yes. that brings me to the notion that it, it almost seems like your sobriety sticking was one miracle after another. So many things contributed. You know, Girl, th- yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it. I, writing about it, I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, this is true. This is true. Wow. Yeah. 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 Suddenly, I was just like, oh my God, did you just have a little angel that's like, we're doing this. You're doing this, whether you like it or not. It seemed like it. It seemed like it from, 
you know, there were, there were just, like you said, there were, there was moment after moment, circumstance after circumstance that, I mean, you know, and the truth is that had I wanted to badly enough, I would have, Mm -hmm. regardless of these kind of parameters that were being set up around me. But I just kept waiting for like an opening (laughs) and it never came. Mm-hmm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. oh, now I can. Um, but that 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 never appeared. Well, and the impetus for all of this is, I mean, you're unhappy. You've been fabricating this persona for yourself for so long. And I won't go into the details of how you got hooked on Ambien, because I think it's important for people to read it in the book. But, mm. you know, you it happens slowly. It's like someone who's suddenly addicted to painkillers because, you know, they hurt their back and it's, it's happening slowly and you don't even realize it's happening until suddenly you're unhappy, miserable, you know, you have to make a change. So you tell your husband you want a divorce mm-hmm. and then you find <laughs> evidence that he knows. Yes. And that, that's when everything begins mm-hmm. and starts to like, you know, you're, you're cornered, you're trapped. The clock is ticking. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, I, you know, I I think they were, they fed each other, my unhappiness and my addiction, like, um, and it's that, that Hemingway quote, which I'm, I'm probably going to get wrong, but I know it's like what you just said, it's gradually and then suddenly is his mm-hmm. response to something. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly how it happened. Like, you know, it was years of taking it as prescribed and then taking it, you know, um, like a, a half more because the, I was building up a tolerance. And then, you know, and then also during that time, oh, am I happy? Like, is this, is this good for me? Is this pa- being parent association president something that is fulfilling for me or am I doing it performatively? Right. Is, are these dinner parties I'm throwing fulfilling for me or are they for this life that I'm trying to live up to? And, and, you know, each, each year I grew further and further away from my authentic self, which I think is a really overused term, but it really applies here. Like the person that I was authentically, um, was so different from the person that I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and I understand now that that want to be something different, that that desire that I had was really self-hatred mm-hmm. um, and that I had to come to terms with that before I could start to love myself. Yeah. Uh, at, at, you know, which I, you see the beginnings of in the book. Um, it's me kind of seeing that I'm also somebody to love just as I am without any hope of change. Right. You didn't think that was possible because you, I mean... What I got out of the book is you didn't think you deserved it. And mm-hmm. you you didn't trust kindness. It couldn't be real. There must it must be a trick. Oh no. Did not trust kindness. <laughs> like everybody had an angle because I did. Mm-hmm. You know, I had an angle for everything. And I was this very from the time that I was little, this very prideful, self-sufficient. <laughs> and anything that threatened that, I was having none of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you had this mantra that, you know, you would give them nothing. Yes. Yes. And really, you were taking everything away from yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was. But I, you know, I couldn't see that. I couldn't see that until I had to see that. I, I, I'll stop saying that again. I didn't have to do anything. But until I got sober and started looking at that stuff mm-hmm. um, and wanting 
to do that work more than I wanted to get loaded again. That's right. when I was able to see it. Yeah. You know, this book is a little bit about, you know, imposter syndrome, but on a way deeper level, yeah. you know, not yeah. just imposter syndrome, like, oh, I've got this great job, but everyone's going to find out I'm actually not qualified to be here. Right. You didn't feel qualified in your life. Yeah. Yeah. I did but not. I, but I know you felt qualified as a mother. I mean, the way you describe like this deep love for these boys is so beautiful. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, they... I, you know, I, I was never a kid person, never babysat, never changed a diaper. <laughs> um, I was pretty sure I didn't want kids. And, you know, when, when my first, when my oldest son was born, I was absolutely blindsided. You know, and it's like, it's like with writing, right? Everybody tells you exactly what to expect when you sign up to be a writer. Everybody tells you about the publishing industry in the world. And I still didn't believe it. <laughs> You know, and um, I, you know, I always think my experience is going to be different. And I, everybody told me that you fall madly in love with your children when they're born. And, and one, I knew that isn't true for everybody. I know that a lot of mothers do not yeah. feel that overwhelming sense of love for their child when they're born. And sometimes they don't ever feel it. And I just wasn't sure if I was going to be one of those people or not, but man, <laughs> it was like a Mack truck. It mm. hit me in the delivery room, and and it and it the same truck hit me when my second son was born the following year. It was overwhelming. I do feel like that love saved your life. I mean, that's really yes. why you did the hard work. Yes, for your boys. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. I I was able, like I I talk about when I speak at um, meetings, I recovery meetings, I, I tell this story of how my biggest instinct is my maternal instinct and my addiction was bigger than that. And I, I didn't realize that until I needed to look for something that was bigger than my addiction, that was bigger than my maternal instinct, which was bigger than my instinct for self-preservation. Like, right. Yeah. Because I didn't really care. Like I've thought just taking pills and washing them down with vodka was survival for me. I, I, I cared more about what would happen to my boys if something happened to me than I cared about what happened to me. <laughs> and not that I wanted to die at any point ever. I, wasn't, I didn't have suicidal ideations, but I was, you know, I was behaving recklessly with my life. And Sure. Well, but, you were getting yeah. by, right? You were doing yes. what you knew. Yeah, yeah. I, I, was, I was trying to survive. That's what and it felt like. Sadly, addiction is a spiral. So yes. as you're going deeper and deeper, you, don't, you have no idea. Right. Right. Can we talk about your ex? Um, in very general, broad terms, he's super private. I know he is. That's yeah. why him, you know, you say in the acknowledgments that he gave you his blessing yes. to tell the story. And I was like, wow, yeah. that was incredibly kind of him. And maybe even, I don't know, really yeah. unusual considering. It is. It is incredibly kind of him. You know, we, we really, I, I think one of the things we did, um, really well was that we got divorced while we still loved each other, mm -hmm. which sounds weird. Mm -hmm. um, I think if that love wasn't there, we wouldn't have the relationship that we have now. And it's not, it's a very, it's a very quiet co-parenting love. It's not like romantically in love. Mm -hmm. um, but that love that we had for each other that we were able to, you know, before it, it self-destructed, 
we 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 were able to you know make the decision to do what was best for our children and yeah. and we did that we did that for years and years and years and um really did a lot as a family still you know mm-hmm. after the divorce and so he's he's been very supportive and he's 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 happy for me that I'm getting a chance to do this well, yeah, and to live your life on your terms. And I think that's what was really, I don't know, cool about reading it was, you know, you depict him in such a kind way. Mm. And there's these times when you distrust him. Oh, yeah. But as the reader, I totally trusted him. Yes. And I could see very clearly he just wanted to help you. Yes. Did Did you intend for the reader to get that? Did you work to yes. create that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> With the perspective I have now, I wanted you to see that I was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) For lack of a better word. For lack of a better word. I was out of my mind. Um, But I wanted the reader to see him as he was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Which I know now, but didn't know then. Right, right. Right. And it's well done. I mean, I feel like we're really taking the journey with you and we're experiencing the emotions then, even though you're telling it in hindsight, you do it Mm -hmm. in real time so well. Thank you. Thank you. His kindness, I, again, it shocked you because you just didn't believe that you deserved it. Yes. Yes. I mean, that wasn't my rationale then, but yeah. I, Did, you know, and talk to me about the title too. Um, <laughs> Stash, My Life in Hiding. Yeah. Where did, where did the title come from? Boy, that was, that was hard to get to. It was... <laughs> Titles was, are, aren't they? I, you know, I'm I'm looking for, you know, all my copies of all the drafts, and I can't find any of them because in my computer because they all have different titles, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't remember all of them. I I keep finding them like, oh, that's right, we called it this for a while. Mm. Um, that's where I stashed that. <laughs> yes, thank you, Chad. Thank you. Um, stash. Every every good drug addict has a stash or two. Um, actually every good addict has a stash, like food addicts have stashes of cookies or whatever, potato chips, um, gamblers have their stashes and anybody that has an addiction, anything that they continue to indulge in despite negative consequences probably has a stash of some kind. Yeah. Um, I, I am also somebody who keeps a very well stocked, I'll say pantry and medicine cabinet. Um, because I have this fear of running out of anything. <laughs> so do you always have a backup? And when the backup's gone, you buy a new one? I, I panic when <laughs> I get to the backup. Like I will never not have a backup. I yeah. always like, I see the backup's the only one left and I'm freaked out. And then I'm on so, Amazon ordering more. <laughs> so you have a backup to your backup. Uh-huh. <laughs> It, it looks like a pharmacy and it looks like a store in our pantry. It's ridiculous. And, and I'm, I'm sure that the, that the lockdown was so helpful for that. Too. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well you were prepared. So we were prepared and, <laughs> and I don't, I don't obsess about it when I'm not thinking about it. Like I don't go to sleep at night thinking, oh, I need this, this, and this. But when I look at it, mm-hmm. um, it freaks me out. So but those, that's like I have a stash of Kleenex. I have a stash of Advil. I have a, you know, I have all these stashes. So um, <laughs> I was writing, I have the page um, in an envelope where I was writing down several titles after the 
six or seven others that we had were just not working. And um, my my hand wrote stash and mm. I watched it, write it. And I was like, huh, huh. Because I stashed away so many pieces of myself for all those years. And I had all these stashes. Like I, I was thinking about calling it something with my closet because I spent so much time in my closet. Um, but I, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out a good title with closet in it that didn't sound like I was coming out of the closet. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, I didn't want it to have, you know, I wanted it to be obvious from the title what kind of book you were picking up. And so I called my agent when I came up with Stash and she's, she's like, yes, this is it. And so we called my editor and she's like, yes. And, um, <laughs> and, that, and that was it. And then, you know, they freaking rocked the cover. Um, Atria, Simon & Schuster, they came up with this cover design and I love it. I love the cover of the book. I love the pink. I love the pills. I love the hand. <laughs> The font is great. The font, yeah. The font. It is the font from all those black exploitation films in the seventies. Also, really similar to the font for Valley of the Dolls, which was a really yep. popular book in the sixties, yeah. early seventies, um, dealing with uh, pill addiction. Mm. Yeah. yeah, very cool. <laughs> and was the subtitle always "My Life in Hiding"? Oh God, no. That was <laughs> we went back and forth so much on that. I wanted to call it. Um, Oh gosh, no, I don't even remember what it was something about um oh the year I ran out of hiding places. That's oh. what I wanted to call it. Yeah. Uh but they didn't like that. And they came up with all sorts of nonsense, I thought. <laughs> Just to, <laughs> I was like, that's crazy. No, we're not using that. None of that works. None of that. Um, my life in hiding was a compromise and I went back and forth, and then the font for it was a whole big thing. It's like so much of a process, my yeah. goodness. Yeah, to sell a book, right? Or even just to get it, you know, get it bound and you know, in a in a box to ship. There's so much, let alone sell it. But yeah, I was it was say, a that's compromise. the easy part. Yeah, yeah. putting it in a box. Yeah, yeah putting it in a box. <laughs> Luckily, you don't have to do that yourself. Yes. I get to open them now. Yay. Yes. Yes. And the day you got your book, that it yeah. arrived and you opened the package. Tell us about that. So the the arc, I think, was more exciting than the finished book. Mm. Um, that The arc is the advanced reader copy, and it's also called a galley. And that, it looked like the finished copy because it had the cover on it. Um, but it was, I mean, I was genuinely jumping around with excitement when I realized what was in the box. <laughs> you didn't even have to see it. <laughs> I didn't even have to see it. I said, oh my God, it's from Simon & Schuster. Oh my God, it's my book. And, um, you know, I, Scott was filming me while I opened it. And, nice. Good or videoing him. me. Yeah. Um, and it's, it was just joy. Like, and, and so surreal, you know, to see. Because like I said, I'm a voracious reader. Like, that's my, I didn't graduate from high school. I didn't go to college. My education comes from all the books I started reading when I was five, six, seven. I read all my mother's books. I didn't read kids' books for a long time. You know, and she read me like Gogol and Dostoevsky. And wow. Um, <laughs> we read together A Tree Grows in Brooklyn and The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck. And mm. those were my books. Like that was my education. And Somewhere when I was like uh, 
10 or 11, I started reading more appropriate, age-appropriate books. But um, <laughs> but I I now had a book, you know? I, I, I learned everything from books. I was every character I ever read about. I, I selected something from them and, and, and made it my own, you know? I yeah, adopted a characteristic yeah. of this character or I strove to my ambitions were similar to this character like it's i'm i'm amalgam that's the right word right when you're yeah different yeah. thing yeah i that's that's who i am i'm an amalgam of all these different characters from books and these different narrators and i love memoir and i love biographies and to f- have my own with my name on it with mm. the copyright inside that says you know my name <laughs> is just it was it was one of the best moments of my life, honestly. Oh, I bet. Yeah. What's next for you? Do we have another book to look forward to? Yes. I don't know what it is, though. <laughs> but yes. You can't stop now, right? I've actually written two different... I've written 60 pages of two different books. Okay. And submitted them to my agent. And she is reading them. Wow. Okay. Whatever direction okay. she says we should keep going in, I will continue writing. Do you, th- do you see fiction in your future? I'm totally open to that. I think I would have to take some classes mm. because I don't know how to write like that. Mm. Um, you do, though. You do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, your book reads like fiction. That's how you want yeah, a memoir to read, read like is fiction. like a fiction book. So, I mean, you've already <laughs> yeah. done it. You just happen to have great... Yeah. I think it's even harder to write your own story because you have to stick to the facts, ma'am. And when you're writing right. fiction, anything is possible. This, I, you know, and I love fiction. Um, I haven't read it in a while. I haven't, I haven't read a lot of fiction lately, but, but I really do love it. I, like I said, I'd be open to that completely. And um, my, my, my instinct was to say, no, absolutely not. I'm a memoirist, but, but <laughs> um, I've, 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 I would like not to limit myself to that. Mm. Yeah. Do you have any advice for, you know, a lot of our listenership, there are writers as well. Do you have any mm-hmm. advice for them about, you know, telling your story and telling it well? I hate advice. I mean, I'm sorry. I hate such a strong word. I don't like to give advice because um, it- Encouragement. How's that? Yeah. Give us some yeah. encouragement. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to- to really, if I mean, if we're talking memoir or a personal essay, um, to to really be sure you you are ready to tell the story mm-hmm. you're telling, I would definitely suggest having some distance if there's trauma involved, um, distance from when you live that that trauma before you write about it, to allow you one the the healing that needs to happen, and and two to have that perspective. Good, advice. Um, Good encouragement, I should say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it is advice. <laughs> it's not encouragement. Um, and but the last thing I will say um, to anyone that's starting out writing, because I'm learning this on the job, people. Mm-hmm. Publishing is a business. That's right. And networking has allowed me to navigate this world in a way that I wouldn't have had I not networked the way that I did to get here. If I didn't do as much as I did, if I didn't build up these platforms, if I didn't have a podcast, I I would not be navigating the world of, you know, a debut memoir the way that I am now. And I'm super grateful for all the hard work I did. 
leading up to this. And that's not to say um, that you you have to do that because if you don't care about selling books, like, and I'm not saying that flippantly, like if that's really not your goal, yeah. you don't have to do any of that. Yeah. But if you want to sell books, there yep. there are definitely certain steps one needs to take unless you're coming from a monster platform. And even then, yeah, it's hard mm-hmm. um, because a lot of those aren't convertible. You know, TikTok followers aren't convertible to book sales. Right. 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 There are just there are certain things that just aren't. So, you know, networking in those right places and really understanding what's going to be expected of you right. as the author. Um, My head is shaking. Yes. 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 It's yes. really important. So which that's, is that's it. Which is why it's so good to like go to the San Diego Writers Festival and join writers yes. groups and do the networking, meet the people, ask the questions, right? That is, you know, at the end of my session um, there this this last time, I was like, you're guys, you're all so lucky because you have each other right now in that mm-hmm. packed room where we were. I was like, get everybody's phone number. <laughs> yeah. Get everybody's yeah, right. Instagram and DM them. You're building a network right now. You don't have to look around. You're at the San Diego Writers Festival. What a better place to be. So many people doubt that too. You know, when they come to me and they say, hey, I'm going to write a book. What do I do? I'm building a platform. I'm like, start now. Do not wait. It's never too late. No. It's never too early. Do it now. And it's never too late either. Mm -hmm. But it might Mm -hmm. be too late for the book yourself. (laughs) And it really can be. That's like a, there is a window. There's like Mm -hmm. a 90 day window when your book comes out and you want it to do well. You want it to prove itself among the other 2 million books out there that year that have been published. Yeah. I mean, I found out you probably know this, that the average book only sells 500 copies over its lifetime. Right. Which is just, I was like, I better get on these (laughs) pre-orders. You're like, oh my God, that will not be me. And it will not. I know it won't. Well, we'll see. They're going, you know, they're going, but they're going a lot slower than I thought they'd be, Mm. which means a lot of people lied to me when they said they pre-ordered the book. (laughs) That happens. I looked at the numbers. I was like, huh. Y'all yeah. couldn't have pre-ordered because the numbers are Bunch only of here. Shifty lying bastard. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I understand they probably intended to. That's exactly I, right. I appreciate that. You just need so. to be reminded. Yeah. And I just want to say, listeners, go out, buy this book Thank from you. your local boutique bookstore and yes. give it a review on Goodreads and Thank give it you. a review on that terrible place we all know, the A word, because right. they you know, those reviews help. They they, they absolutely do. help. They do. And, and this tell your is, friends. Then tell your friends, buy it as a gift. Um, I've been telling my friends. I mean, it's such a, it's not just a book about addiction. And that's the important thing to know here is it's a, it's a, it's a memoir and all it all it's with all its best, you know, Mm. because it's about, like I said, it's about love, but it's also about empowerment, you know, Um, for women who feel that imposter syndrome. This is a really fantastic book to make you go. Yeah. We got this. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really want to see it on the screen. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking to myself, wouldn't that be funny if Laura's ex ended up directing this? <laughs> <laughs> well, Who's going to uh, play you? Right. That yeah, would, would be very funny. That's not going to happen. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Hollywood's a crazy place. You never know. Hollywood is a crazy place. No, we are, we're actually talking to a couple of people who mm, have the same the vision for it that I do. And okay. we'll, we'll see what happens with it. Okay, who would play you? That's a good question, Chad. You know, I have no, I think probably <laughs> nobody I know. Yeah. 
I think we don't know that person. Yeah, I think the the idea of an unknown sounds really appealing to me, mm, or a vaguely like known actress. Yeah, um, that's cool. I, yeah, I think it would be. It's it's just too hard, and it actually goes to the dearth of women of color in Hollywood right now. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. that are are leading actress, um, leading actresses rather. There there just aren't that many. Yeah, sing um, it. That's yes. right. We yes. need more. So Absolutely. We, we do need more because I can't think of anybody to play me. That's why we need more. <laughs> <laughs> She's out there. She is somewhere. And again, listeners, thank you for listening. This is a really close to my heart episode oh. because Lure means a lot to me. And this book is really, it's a great book. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And, and thank you for having me on again. Of course. Your next book, we'll, we'll see you here again. Yes. All right, friends, follow Laura on Instagram at the only one in the room and at Laura Cathcart Robbins. Learn more about Laura and Scott on their website, theonlyonepod.com. And find links to their Twitter and social accounts. There's lots of ways to follow them and support them, subscribe, rate their podcast, buy the book. You want to keep up with this lady, folks. (laughs) I think she's about to rock it. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. And you can follow The Premise on Twitter at Pod Premise and SD Writers Fest on Instagram. Visit us online at thepremisepod.com and subscribe and rate The Premise wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Premise, the official podcast of the San Diego Writers Festival.